our praise bands, a little old skeleton crew this morning. Thank you, Timmy and John and Amanda and uh, for filling in the gap and holding everything together. And we're so thankful for our praise band leading us in worship. We're in John chapter 13 this morning, so if you'll open your Bibles or turn on to John chapter 13, I want us to consider, really I think one of the greatest, most powerful, most amazing lessons that Jesus ever taught. I mean, Jesus gave us an object lesson that really leaves an indelible mark on your mind. I mean, it's a powerful image because the Son of God, the King of the universe, our living hope, put on a servant's towel and washed dirty, stinky, smelly feet. Now, that was no easy feat, amen? You know, in America, it's about climbing the social and economic ladder. It's about climbing the, the, the ladder of success, and it's about getting to the top. And so when you get to the top, you don't have to serve others. You get to be served by others. And so we're always pursuing some type of greatness. And success sometimes is measured based on how many people serve you. But the king of kings would say success is based on how many people you serve. And so John 13 tells us a story of what happened on a Thursday night in Israel. Uh, as a night of Passover, before Passover. And the Jews were there in Jerusalem and they were, they were celebrating how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery. And so Jesus was there meeting with his disciples and he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. In less than 24 hours, Jesus knew that he would be bearing our sin on Calvary's cross. And during that Passover supper, the disciples began to argue over who was the greatest. I mean, on Jesus' mind was the coming crucifixion. But on the disciples' minds, it was who's going to be the greatest. Jesus knew with this, just within hours, he was going to be bearing the sin of the whole world. And the disciples were discussing who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26... Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now the word that Jesus used there for slave is the Greek word doulos. And to be a doulos meant that you were the, the, really on the lowest rung of the social ladder. I mean, you were at the very bottom. You were in a very despised position. And so Jesus said that if you want to be first, be a slave, a doulos. And then Jesus asked his disciples in Luke 22, verse 27. He said this, for who, who is greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? He said, is it not the one who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's saying his, basically to his disciples, I am the greatest. I should be sitting at the table being served, but I am among you as one who serves. And you see his heart. And Jesus, the King of Kings, made himself a slave. And really, unless someone was a slave, unless someone was a servant, they would not be washing someone else's feet. I mean, who wanted to wash somebody's feet? No respecting Jew or no Gentile would really willingly wash somebody's feet. That was an act of service for a slave or a servant. It was a very demeaning act. And Jesus got up that particular night and he filled a basin full of water. And I think his disciples all of a sudden got real still, real quiet. 
They focused their attention on Jesus, trying to figure out exactly what he was about to do. And then Jesus laid aside his garments and he picked up a servant's towel and he wrapped it around himself. And that really got their attention. They were very curious at this moment. Why would their rabbi, why would their teacher put on a servant's towel? And then Jesus knelt before each one of those disciples. And he washed their feet. You know, foot washing back in that day was really a normal part of life. It's a normal thing that took place. They didn't wear leather shoes like we're wearing, like I'm wearing this morning. They didn't wear socks. They didn't walk on concrete sidewalks. They, rode on, they, they walked on, on dusty, dirty trails. In fact, it was the same trail that animals would walk on. And when animals would walk on those dusty trails, they did what animals would do. And yet they would walk on those dusty trails with those open sandals. And sometimes people would just go barefoot. So you can imagine uh, the dirt and the filth that would be on their feet. And so that was a, a normal thing for people to be, um, have dirty feet and smelly feet. Some people have that even when they wear leather shoes, don't they? But in Jerusalem, there would be all these public baths located around the city. And you could go into one of these public baths and there would be a servant there who would wash your feet. And they would clean your feet. And that would be one thing that would take place. And if you were uh, somebody who was a homeowner and you had guests in your home, one of the things that you would do is make sure that your guests had their feet washed. Now, you might not do it yourself. You would have a servant or a slave. And then when they would come into their house, uh, your house, you would have them take their shoes off and then that servant would wash their feet. It was a normal act of hospitality. You know, when those slaves would wash those feet of those, those people, it would make their feet feel so good. It'd be so relaxing, so refreshing to have all that dirt washed off your feet. I mean, have someone pour cold water across your feet. So refreshing. You know, a few years ago, we were visiting in Israel. And we were down at the Dead Sea. And we were staying in this particular hotel. Now, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. It's in the desert. And we were staying at this real nice hotel. And, and I remember it was, it was kind of um, luxurious. And I remember they had all these spas there. And um, some people in our group would go try those spas out. I mean, they wanted to take, take uh, advantage of all the comforts of those spas. Well, one of the things that you could get there was what they call a fish pedicure. I've never had a fish pedicure, but people would. They'd put their feet in this aquarium and have all these little carp. And these carp would eat the dead uh, calluses and dead flesh off your feet and make your feet feel so good. Now, I didn't have that done to me, but I saw some other people who did. And they loved it. Made their feet feel so good, so clean, so refreshed. And so that's what happened when somebody washed your feet. And so Jesus, he knelt before his disciples and he became a slave and he washed the disciples' feet and he refreshed them. You know, Jesus gives us a picture here in John 13 of washing feet, but it was much more than just washing feet. In fact, Jesus said in, in John 13, verse 7, what I'm doing you don't understand, but you will. And Jesus was teaching more than just foot washing. He was talking about the attitude of our heart. And I want you to write this down because this is something you need to take home with you. The attitude of your heart will determine the posture of your life. The attitude of your heart will determine the posture of your life. And so what's the attitude of your heart? Jesus said in verse 15 of John chapter 13, He said, I've given you an example to follow. He's saying, follow my example. Follow my attitude. Let the attitude that's in me be in you. And if the attitude that's 
in me is in you, then you have the same posture that I have. Well, what was the posture of Jesus? What was Jesus' posture? His posture was to kneel down before his disciples and to wash their feet. It's a posture of service. It's a posture of servitude. Let me ask you this. What is the attitude of your heart? What's the posture of your life this morning? I want to give you a few things that really, if you want to have the attitude that Christ had in him that you need to have in you. Number one, if you're going to have the same attitude in your heart that Jesus had, then your service needs to be rooted in love. Your service needs to be rooted in love. Christian service must be rooted in love. Look at verse 1 of John chapter 13. It says that Jesus knew his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, I heard a story about a, a younger preacher who wanted to really test, or not really test, but get some information from an older seasoned theologian. This, he was a mature theologian. He, he was seasoned, and he wanted to really get some wisdom from this older seasoned uh, uh, theologian. So he said to him, he said, out of, all your, out of all your study, I mean, he had a massive library. He said, of all your, out of all your study, out of all your years of experience, out of all your knowledge, can you give me the greatest truth that you've ever learned in one simple statement. And that seasoned theologian said this, I can give it to you very simply. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I can't get over that, can you? Jesus loves you. His service was rooted in love. Jesus loved them to the end. In John 13, 34, Jesus says this to you and me, love one another as I have loved you. The same kind of love he tells you how to love, as he loved us. Now the love that Jesus is talking about is not like a choice, it's a commandment. Jesus commanded you and he commanded me to love each other. Now he didn't command us to like one another. You can't command somebody to like somebody else. You can't command someone to feel a certain way. Jesus wasn't saying uh, that he wanted you to feel a certain way. He wanted you to display love. It's an action. It's not a feeling. You know, there are, there are Greek words for love that describe feeling. Like phileo. That's a, a brotherly love. That's an affection for a brotherly love. And then there's storge. That's like a, a love that you might have for your family where you have an effect, affection. But the word that Jesus used was agape. It's a sacrificial love. It's a willful love. It's an active, deliberate love. It's not just a profession. It's not just saying, I love you. It's a demonstration of love. You know, Jesus demonstrated his love towards you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's Romans 5.8. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He died for you and me. We were still his enemies. In John 15.13, just a few pages over, Jesus said this, Greater love has no man than this than to lay his life down for his friends. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. You know, it's a day that we reflect on the scores of people who died protecting others and providing freedom. I read the story of a lieutenant. His name was John Robert Fox. He was 29 years old. He was serving in the military during World War II. And he was in a small Italian village and the battle was very fierce in that village. And so on December 
1944, Christmas Day, those soldiers had found some time to be able to give out some cheese and chocolate to the villagers. But during the, the night, er, in the early mornings of December 26th, they came under heavy fire. They were surrounded by the German forces. John Robert Fox radioed his U.S. contact. He said, I need you to bomb this building that we are hunkered down in. His radio contact said, sir, if we do that, you're going to be killed. He said, bomb the building. There are more of them than there are of us. And if you bomb the building, it'll give our remaining troops an opportunity to escape. And that's what he did. They, they bombed the building. On December 26, 1944, John Robert Fox gave his life to save his fellow soldiers. What greater love does any man have than this than to lay down his life for his friends? But you know, when Jesus laid down his life, he didn't lay down his life just for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the love that Christ has given you and me. Jesus loved his enemies. You know, it's not an easy thing to love your enemies, is it? I mean, it's, it's easy to love your friends, but what about your enemies? Well, that night that Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, they were all together in that room. He, decided, he washed every single disciple's feet. And there was a man in that room. His name was Judas. And Judas was in that room. You know, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that really that Judas was not his friend. But you know that Jesus didn't treat him any differently? Jesus did not shun him. Jesus did not uh, avoid Judas. You know, you, did you know that Jesus' heart was troubled by Judas? Look at verse 21 for a moment. John chapter 13, verse 21. It says that he, Jesus, was troubled in spirit. Why was he troubled? And he testified that, most assuredly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He was troubled that he was going to be denied and betrayed by Judas. And in verse 22 it says, The disciples looked at one another. They were perplexed about whom he spoke. I mean, they didn't realize who it was going to be. They didn't know who, who it might be. Nobody ever suspected Judas because Jesus never treated him any differently. He loved him the same. He never shunned him. He never avoided him. He never uh, uh, cast him aside. He loved him the same as he did all of his other disciples. And so they didn't even know who it might be. In fact, whenever Jesus made that statement, they were so confused. Some of them said, am I the one? Is it me? Am I going to be the one who denies you? Am I going to be the one who betrays you? They weren't sure. But you know, I think the reason that Jesus was so distressed about Judas, I think he was distressed about the betrayal. But I think he was more distressed by the reality that Judas would soon be in hell. Separated forever. Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's Jesus' heart. You know, Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He had the best Bible training that you'll ever receive. He heard all Jesus' messages. He heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes through the Father but by me. He heard that message. He ministered with the disciples, and he ministered with Jesus. He was around Jesus the whole time, but he never followed Jesus with his heart. He never surrendered to Jesus. He never accepted God's salvation. He wasn't saved. Yes, he was the treasure of the group. He was trusted, but he was never saved. Now, some people think, well, maybe he lost his salvation. Don't think that Judas lost his salvation. He did not ever have salvation. 
And Judas was a lot, a lot like people who come to church now. Some people come to church every Sunday and they hear sermon after sermon after sermon. They grew up in church and they've heard it over and over and over. But they've never been saved. Uh, some people have even been to Camp Pine Hill. We talk about it around here a lot. But they've never been saved. Some people have even served in the church. But they've never been saved. They've been around Jesus. They just never have been changed by Jesus. They've been around Jesus. They just have never been saved by Jesus. And maybe some of you this morning have been around Jesus, but maybe you haven't been saved by Jesus. But don't get the idea that that Judas lost his salvation. He never had it. If you're saved, you're saved forever. Let me give you two verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says this. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. They are perfected forever. You say, well, that's not good enough. You got anything else? Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, Being confident of this very thing. Now, when you're confident, that means you're confident. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, I've not, not finished everything I've started. I don't know about you, but I haven't. But the Bible says that Jesus is going to finish what he started. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Now, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to win $10,000. Anybody need $10,000? Okay, Timmy does, all right? I want to give you an opportunity this morning to win $10,000. So what I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to study the Scripture. And I want you to find where someone in the Bible who was saved, legitimately, authentically saved, and then lost their salvation. And when you find that person, I want you to bring that name to me and then Pastor John's going to give you $10,000. You're not going to find that person because nobody's ever been saved and lost their salvation. You won't find it in Scripture. But there are some people who think they're saved and are not. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 gives us a sobering statement. Paul said this, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, how do, how do you know if you're in the faith? How do you examine yourself? You know, as I was reading this past week, I, I came across uh, four tests that someone wrote about how you can examine yourself. I'm going to give you these questions. I thought they were a great example of how you might be able to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Number one, Do you have a love for Jesus? Do you love spending time with Jesus? Test number one. Do you have a love for Jesus? Test number two. Do you hate sin? Do you hate the sin that's in your life? You know, some people want to get saved so they can just sin all they want. Well, let me tell you, whenever you have an authentic relationship with Jesus, you don't want to sin anymore. You hate the sin. Number three. Do you have a desire to see lost people saved? Do you have a burden for lost people? I don't know how you could be saved and not have a passion for lost people. And then I'll give you the last one. You know, I can never know if you're saved. Because I don't know. I can only see the outside. But there's a way you can know. The Bible says that the Spirit of God will reveal to your spirit that you're His child. It's found in Romans 8.16. You want to write this verse down. Romans 8.16 says this. The Spirit... Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. His spirit will reveal to your spirit that you belong to Him. 
Now, I can't do that. Only He can do that. And I can't know that. Only He can and you can. Now, we do know about Judas that he was an enemy of Jesus. But I know this about Jesus. Jesus loved him to the end. Jesus loved him to the end. Jesus demonstrated his love to Judas. Now, Judas went to hell, but he didn't do it because Jesus didn't love him. He did it because he rejected the love of Christ. And you know what? You might miss heaven and you might hit hell. But if you do, you'll do it because you rejected the love of Christ. He loves you. And whenever you have an attitude of Christ, your service must be rooted in love. Secondly, your service must be uh, reflective of humility. Christian service reflects humility. And when you serve Christ, you reflect the humility of Christ. Look at verse 3 for just a moment. It says, Knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. He knew he had all power and authority. And still, he picked up a servant's towel. Despite all of his authority, he lowered himself and became a servant and took on the task of a servant. You know, this past week, our staff has been working on looking at some small group studies for the fall. And we've been kind of screening them. And so I was screening one of those studies and, and I came across this particular gentleman and he was a CEO of a company and uh, he had a lot of responsibility. He had a lot of abilities. He had a lot of skills. And so he was in this church and he said, you know, this church, this CEO, they asked him to park cars in the church parking lot. And can you imagine this CEO of this major company parking cars in the church parking lot? Well, he said in this video, he said, you know, that wasn't the best use of my skills. And I thought when I heard that, I said, pal, God could care less about your abilities and your skills. God can make a donkey talk. He doesn't need your abilities or your skills. That's not what he needs from you and me. He doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. If God can make a donkey talk, He can use anything He wants to. He doesn't care about your ability. He cares about your availability. You know, Jesus was the, not only a king, but He was the king of kings. And the king of kings lowered Himself, put on a servant's towel, knelt before His disciples and began to wash their filthy, dirty, stinky feet. And Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm the king of kings. I created all this world. Everything you see, I made. This is not the best use of my skills. No, Jesus, the King of Kings, made himself a doulos, a servant, a bondservant, the lowest type of servant on earth. And Jesus was doing slave labor. In the history of the world, there has never been someone more overqualified to do a job than Jesus was when he was washing the disciples' feet. And Jesus said, you know what? If you're going to be my disciple, you follow my example. If you're too big to do the small jobs, you're too small to do the big jobs. It's not about the size of the job. It's about the attitude of the heart. The attitude of your heart will determine the posture of your life. You know, if you have an arrogant heart, an egotistical heart, then you will not wash somebody's feet. But if you have a humble heart, there's nothing too low for you to do. The attitude of your heart will determine the posture of your life. You know, if God called two of his angels together, he said, okay, I got a job for, for you to do. 
He said, I need, I need one of you to go rule the most powerful city on the world. I want you to have authority over the most powerful city in the world. And the other one, I need to go clean the dirtiest streets in the world. You know, it'd make no difference to either of those angels which one did which job. Because the thing that was most important to them would be serving the King of Kings. It wouldn't matter which job they did. And do you know what humility is? You know, sometimes we think humility is putting yourself down, being derogatory about yourself. Well, Jesus didn't put himself down. The Bible says he knew who he was, he knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. He didn't put himself down. When you put yourself down, that's not a posture of humility. No. You need to know this. Humility knows you're a child of God. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your own works, but by the grace of God. You are a child of God. You were a slave to sin, and now you're a slave to a Savior. That's who you are. Humility is being able to lower yourself to meet someone else's need without awareness. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the King. You know, several years ago, we took a medical mission group to Burkina Faso. And we were working in a little village called Balambar. And we had a, a medical clinic there. And it was just a small uh, clinic this particular year that we were there. And, and a, a guy went with us from our church. His name was Preston Moore. And uh, Preston Moore was studying pre-med at, uh, at North Greenville University at the time. And so we were out there, and I said, you know, Preston, I hate to ask you this. I said, but I need somebody to clean these, these, uh, these infectious wounds on these people. A lot, of, a lot of people would have wounds on their feet and their legs, and they would be uh, uh, necrotic. They would be uh, infectious. And I said, I need you to debride those things and clean them out so they can heal, and it would just smell horrible. And so Preston said, okay, I'll do that. So he's working there, and he's doing that all day long, the whole time, for 12 days. And one day I went to go check on Preston while he was doing that. He was working on one of those wounds, and it was, had such a pungent aroma. It was, just, it, was, uh, it was horrendous. And I felt so bad I had to ask him to do that. And so later I said, Preston, I'm sorry I asked you to do that. I said, I just didn't have anybody else to ask. Preston said, well, don't, don't apologize. He said, out of all the mission trips I've ever been on, this is the first time somebody gave me something meaningful to do. That's raising foot washing to a new level. That's humility. Being able to lower yourself in that regard. You know, some of us like the prominent jobs in church. We like the, the ones that have visibility. But Jesus has not called you to visibility. He's called you to humility. You know, some of, some of the most vital parts of the body are the most unseen parts. You know, I, I come out and... And uh, you might look at my face and you might say, you know, you see my nose protruding from my face. You say, well, that's prominent. It's not prominent because it's large. It's just because everybody's got one, right? No, when you see me, you see my nose. It's prominent. You can't miss it. It's extremely visible. But do you know what's not prominent? My, my pancreas is not prominent. You don't see my pancreas. Did you know that you could live without your nose? I mean, it wouldn't be pleasant. It might not be uh, uh, attractive, but you can live without your nose. But you can't live without your pancreas. Some, some of those invisible things, those hidden things are the most important things. You know, I think about ministry at First Baptist Church. There are some things that are very essential to our ministry here at First Baptist, but they're not always very visible. I mean, our praise band is visible. And they do a wonderful job, and they are important. And they're very seen. But I'll tell you what's unseen. The folks who are serving in our nursery right now. The folks who are keeping babies so that parents can be in church. If we're going to reach families, we're going to need nursery workers and preschool workers and children's workers. They are the unseen force that really enable us to really reach people for Christ. 
And they are indispensable. But let me ask you this question. Do you have a humble heart? Are you willing to serve where there's the greatest need? Even if it's not seen. Number three. A service that, is, that has the attitude of Christ must also respond with ministry. Christian service responds in ministry. I want you to put this picture in your mind. The disciples were reclining at that table at the Lord's Supper. That, well, they didn't call it the Lord's Supper then. It was just a Passover meal. And they were reclining there. And they would lean on one arm. They would be stretched out. And then they would eat with the other one. And their feet were all inter, intertwined. And it would be very possible for them to have each other's feet in their face while they ate. Can you imagine trying to eat with somebody's feet in your face and be stinky and smelly? I mean, that's what it was like. And so uh, everybody was sitting around with their feet in each other's faces while they were trying to eat. And and, uh, there was no servant there to wash the disciples' feet. It was smelly and stinky. But nobody did anything about it. I mean, everybody in the room knew the problem. Everybody in in the room knew that their feet had not been washed. Everybody in the room smelled the aroma. It was not hidden. They knew it. But no one took the initiative I can almost imagine the conversation. Peter said, hey guys, somebody needs to wash this, uh, do the foot washing around here. And Matthew might say, hey, I just bought some new threads. I can't get them dirty. And old James would say, well, you guys, I don't do feet. Uh, feet, just not, they're just not my thing. And then uh, Andrew might say, hey, uh, I just can't take the smell, okay? I just can't tolerate it. It makes me nauseous. Can't take the smell. And then somebody said, well, somebody needs to do it. How about you, Judas? He says, no, I got a very important meeting with some dignitaries later. I don't have time for this. And Jesus saw the need, and he responded with ministry. He saw the need, and he lowered himself and washed the disciples' feet. Now, Jesus wasn't starting a new ordinance that we need to wash each other's feet every Sunday. What he was teaching us was that we need to respond to needs with ministry. You know, there are physical needs, there are emotional needs, but the greatest need is a spiritual need. And when Jesus got to Peter, Peter said, oh, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. I don't know what you are doing. You should not be doing this. You are not going to wash my feet. You're not supposed to be acting like a servant. You're our rabbi. You know, Peter was almost always the one you would expect to object. He always put his foot in his mouth. He He had foot and mouth disease. He did it quite often. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter's like, wait, 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 just one minute. I did not realize foot washing was that important. (laughs) If that's the case, don't just wash my feet, but wash me all over. You know, Jesus was changing the analogy here. He wasn't focusing on physical dirt. He was focusing on spiritual dirt, spiritual filth. And in verse 10, Jesus said to Peter, He who is bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. You know, I think a lot of little boys would like it if they could just wash their feet and they'd be clean all over. I think they would like that. But Jesus wasn't talking about physical dirt. He was talking about spiritual dirt that pollutes our lives. And what Jesus is basically saying is this. When you come to me in repentance, when you confess your sin, I will cleanse you and make you clean completely. Peter wasn't refusing Jesus because of his humility. He was refusing Jesus because of his pride. You know the greatest hindrance to salvation is our pride. I mean, some people say, I don't really need Jesus. 
I could do this on my own. I'll just be good enough on my own. But let me, let me just say this. You will never be good enough to cleanse your own sin. And, you know, some people, some people have pride in their badness. You ever thought about that? There's, they'll say, you know, I, I've sinned so much, God can't forgive me. Do you think that your sin is greater than the blood of Christ to cover your sin? No matter how black your sin is, when you bring it to Jesus in repentance, He can make you whiter than snow. Now, when we're saved, we're always saved. But we walk in a dirty world, don't we? We live in a dirty world. And sometimes when you walk through this world as a Christian, you can pick up some dirt from this world. I don't know if you ever have that problem. But it's real easy to do. And whenever you find yourself doing some things that you shouldn't, and you begin to attract dirt of this world, you need to bring it to Jesus and He'll cleanse you. When I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine. I remember talking about this one night with him. He and I were having a conversation. And um, we got to talking. And I knew he wasn't really where he was supposed to be. I didn't know what was going on. He began to tell me. He said, you know, I was, I was riding down the road one day, and I saw this sign. And it was a, an advertisement for a strip club. He said, now, I, I wasn't even thinking about a strip club. He said, but all, all of a sudden, that seed got planted in my mind. He said, and then I began to be kind of intrigued. And then I was curious. And then I decided I would go and see what it was all about. He said, the next thing you know, I was going every weekend, over and over and over. He said, my spiritual life began to decay. He said, and then somebody came along and they confronted me on the issue. They realized something was missing in my life and they called me out. He said, when I realized what I had become, I just confessed it before God. I felt broken before Him. John, 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you pick up the dirt of this world, you need to bring it to Jesus and turn from it. And He'll wash it away. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for God's forgiveness, aren't you? Do you know how God forgives you? Psalm 103, verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. You know, when you get up in the morning, can you look out of your window and see the, the west coast? It's too far. It's out of sight. That's what God does to my sin and your sin when you confess it. Think about Corey Tim Boom. She said, you know, God took her sin and she, she, he dropped it in the depths of the sea. And then he put a sign up that says, no fishing allowed. I don't know about you, but I like that idea. And God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. I want to give you one last thing. If you're going to serve with the same attitude that Jesus has, it requires surrender. Until you surrender to Christ, you're a slave to sin. You're born as a slave to sin. Now you might say this morning, well, I'm not anybody's slave. I'm not subservient to anyone. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I don't answer to anybody. Oh, yes, you do. If you don't know Christ, you are a slave to sin. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 34, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So you are either a slave this morning to Christ or you are a slave to your sin. And the Bible says you will love the one and hate the other or you will serve the one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. Who's your master? If you've been born again, you are, you're no longer a slave to sin. God's given you a choice to, to serve Christ, for Him to be your master. The question is, what master are you serving this morning? You know, the Apostle Paul knew that he could not serve sin and God at the same time. So there was a point in his life on the road to Damascus, he surrendered his life to Christ. Do you know in Romans chapter 1, you can, look at, you can look at how many times Paul made this statement, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, 
Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Do you know that word is doulos? It means slave. I am a slave of Christ. You know, when you're a bondservant, when you're a doulos, you have no will of your own. When you are a doulos, you have no agenda of your own. When you are a doulos, you have no purpose of your own. You are completely at your master's disposal. That's what Paul was saying. I'm a doulos of Jesus Christ. I think Paul would put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've been crucified with Christ, then you have no will of your own. You have no agenda of your own. You have no purpose of your own. You are at Christ's disposal. It's when you kneel down before God and say, whatever you want me to do, I will do it whether I like it or not. I will do it whether I feel like I'm able or not. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. If you're going to be a servant of Christ, then he expects service from us. The Bible says Jesus took off his towel and he sat down and he said, Fellas, you call me teacher and Lord and, and so I am. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. And if I have washed your feet, then you ought to also wash each other's feet. If I have served you, then you ought to serve one another. I have given you an example, a pattern that you should do as I've done to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus was saying, I expect service from my service, just like I served you. Let me ask you, are you serving him? Have you surrendered completely to him? You know, I read a story about a man by the name of F.B. Meyer. He was a, a uh, Baptist preacher in England, very well known for his missions and his messages and, and, and the things that he wrote. Well, F.B. Meyer, uh, when he was younger, he was intrigued by an athlete in England. His name was C.T. Studd. Uh, and he, his name was C.T. Studd, and that's what he was. He was a big man. He was a strong man. He was a tall man. He was a witty man. He was a wealthy man. I mean, he had all the bells and whistles. And he was an athlete, a famous athlete in England. And um, he said, you know, I'm not going to be an athlete. I'm going to be a missionary to China. That's where my heart lies. And F.B. Meyer said, you know, when I saw him, I saw something in him that was so real so full of power, something different that I knew wasn't in my own life. He said, so I made it my aim. If I ever got an opportunity, I was going to ask him, what is it about him that makes him so different? And so he got that opportunity, and he, he had a chance to talk to C.T. Studd. And he said to him, there's something different about your life that's different than mine. He said, you know, I'd just like to know what's the secret to your, your spiritual life. And C.T. Studd looked at him with a very penetrating look. He said, have you surrendered everything to Christ? And F.B. Meyer said, yes, I have. He said, the moment I said it, I knew it was a lie. The Holy Spirit told me it was a lie, and I knew it was true. He said, when that conversation was over, I went, down, I went to my home, and I got down on my knees, and I said, God, I want to surrender everything I am to you. I want your power to be evident in my life. He said, it was just like Jesus was there. I don't know if you've ever been praying. You can just feel the presence of Christ in the room. He said, it's like Jesus said, you want my power? Do you really want what I have for you? He said, then you give me the keys to your life. And F.B. Meyer said, you know, I, I, 
figuratively speaking, I gave Jesus the keys to my life. And it's like Jesus took those keys and, and uh, I just surrendered it to him. It's like a, uh, something different had happened. And then the Lord began to count those keys. And then he said, well, Epi, one's missing. And Epi said, well, Jesus, that's just a little old key to a little old closet. It's nothing big. And Jesus laid those keys down and he started walking out. And F.B. Meyer said, wait, Jesus, don't leave. Where are you going? He said, if I cannot be Lord of all, I will, I will not be Lord at all. He said, well, Lord, it's just a small thing. And Jesus turned to walk again. And when he did, F.B. Meyer said, okay, I'll give it all to you. I surrender completely. And when he did, he said, that's when he realized he knew the power and freedom of Christ. Let me ask you this. Have you surrendered all to Christ? Are you serving others in love? Are you willing to serve even when it's not visible? Are you serving in humility? Are you uh, uh, willing to serve wherever God asks you to serve, even if you don't feel qualified or capable? I mean, who really, did, who really is? We're just, we're just earthen vessels. We're just jars of clay. The only thing that makes us special is the Holy Spirit that lives in us, right? What's the attitude of your heart? What's the posture of your life? Are you serving others? Are you ministering to people around you? Are you interested in just being in your comfort zone? Where are you? You know, as you think about this story, I want you to find yourself in this story. Where are you? And so as we come to this time of invitation, I'm going to ask our praise band to come on up. They're coming up. I'm going to ask you to bow your head in prayer just for a moment. Our praise band's coming up, and I want you just to think about some things. Where are you? What's the attitude of your heart? What's the posture of your life? Are you serving have you surrendered? Are you ministering to, to needs around you? During our invitation, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. And maybe you just need to come and say, God, I've, I picked up some filth from this world. I just need to come clean before you today. Or maybe you need to say, God, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do, no matter what, I will do it. Even if I don't feel like I have the ability or qualified. I'm yours. I'm your doulos. I'm your bondservant. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Lord, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that you set before us. And we think about how to serve and how you served us and you ask us to serve the same way that you served. I think about how you say for us to, to love one another as you have loved us. Lord, those are no easy feats. And so, Lord, unless you do it in us, we can't do it on our own. And so as we come to this time of invitation, I just pray your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to challenge us, help us to, to respond to you the way you lead us. And so we just dedicate this moment right now asking you to work in our hearts. We're going to be responsive and we're going to be receptive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you respond as the Lord leads you this morning? To every question.